Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome today. Today is a work day. Well, all of you are able to be here. And it's great as we just gather together uh, to worship the Lord, that, that it is about Him. It's not about even sometimes the structure we plan or our own, uh, that He can take um, just broken vessels and use it for use us for His glory. Um, and so I want to start today with a pretty bad dad joke. My wife has just entered her third trimester, and so I'm getting ready, getting these jokes ready again. So on your bulletin or on your notes, you can write the word C-H blank, C-H, the letter, C-H blank, C-H. Write them down. And what's missing? C-H blank, C-H. Is it a chemistry formula? Carbon, hydrogen? C-H blank, C-H. What's missing is you are, and then you spell it out and it says church. Oh, that's a bad dad joke. Well, you can tell that joke to any friend that you feel like haven't, you haven't seen them here at WSBC in the, in the last few weeks or if they're not here today. Uh, you can tell that to your kids when they get out of a gospel project. Um, but awful dad jokes aside, I, I tell this joke because we are looking at the church. We are a gathering of the body of Christ together. So it's a little bit meta because we'll be studying about the church while we're, together, while we're together here as the church, in the church. And so I wanted to ask, what are your hopes for church? What brings you to church today? What brings you here today? Because a Christian should be going to church? Because I'm a member, so I should be present at every Sunday? Because my parents told me to come, so I came with them? Or maybe a friend invited you to come to church today, maybe to check it out. Or maybe you've been visiting WSBC for for a few weeks and to check it out as well. And so as we sit here and as we gather and worship our Lord, where where do you want to hope to be after this service? Where would you like to be after this church service today? In about 40, maybe 50 minutes from now, Are you eagerly waiting to see where you can go have lunch? Are you thinking about trying out that new restaurant that's at the mall nearby? Kids, are you thinking about who you're going to play with this afternoon? About which house I'm going to go to or who's going to come over? Some adults, are you you waiting for a nap as well? And so we ask these things because why do we do church? And then the question of how should we do church? We gather faithfully on Sundays. We learn from God's word. We worship him. We Sabbath together. We take the Lord's Supper together and we fellowship. And so as a church, we've been through many different seasons. We've seen many baptisms. We've seen births of new babies, marriages. We've installed new elders, new deacons, and welcomed many new members into our membership. However, we've also seen many sadder seasons. We've grieved with the passing of relatives of members of our church. We've seen people leave and resign from our church. We've seen miscarriages in our church. We've faced pressures either from pandemic or from persecution of the government, by the government. And so with all of these different events, all of these different circumstances that happen, we may at times lose sight of our calling and of our mission as Christ's body. A month ago, we celebrated and we gathered together uh, just the Lord's faithfulness in our church as we uh, just had our five-year anniversary since being planted by Shanghai International Bible Church, SIBC. And so SIBC, praise the Lord, they still continue to gather and meet in this city. 
And so there, during this time, one of our elders, Luke, he uh, handed out a report card to our church. And he was using the standard stated in Acts 2, 42 as his reference. And so this passage was also preached by Mark Collins in our very first service as WSBC. Passage shows the first local church receiving the Holy Spirit as a body. And Mark reminded us that the church needed to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so today, as we dig further into Corinthians and Paul's letter, we saw last week that he is writing to a church dealing with issues, and he addresses more of these concerns this week's, in this week's passage in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul spent much of his time during his second missionary journey at Corinth. He was there for uh, over a year and a half proclaiming the gospel and establishing this new church at Corinth. And so Corinth is a key port city. If you don't know uh, too much about it, I can give you some of the facts about this metropolis. One, it's very rich and international. It was a very prosperous city situated at a very important strategic point that was connecting two large bodies of water. One was headed to Europe and to Rome, and then the other one led into Asia. And so it was a major city of business with many people that came here into the city for that very purpose. The second one it was very well populated, and it was an eclectic mix that was a diverse mix of culture, of beliefs, of opinions, of religions. There are lots of temples there. Uh, many um, temples of Athena, Pos uh, Poseidon, Hermes, all these different Greek gods. And so many cultures gathered together, mixed together, and they brought in their own giftings, their own cultures, and even their own crafts and goods and knowledge and all their ideas to help contribute to the growing wealth of the city. And the third one, it was focused mainly on entertainment, leading to a general common accepted uh, immorality in the city. There were lots of uh, entertainment there, there was athletic contests, uh, but there was also a lot of ways to distract. Um, and so the biggest and most prominent temple there was a temple for Aphrodite, which was the goddess of love. So that resulted in an, uh, a culture of sexual immorality that was prevalent in the city. Leon Morris, who's a noted New Testament scholar, describes Corinth as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. Does that sound familiar? This is what Shanghai sounds like today. And Dr. Tim Keller would actually argue that Corinth is more like New York City. But whether New York City or Shanghai, Corinth, you can see, is a, is a, key, is a key city of commerce. And so Shanghai, we do have a large mix of nationalities, of cultures. It's a glamorous city here where there's many things to do that may distract us or entertain us. Think of all the things that could distract or pull us away from church, even our own church. How do we stray away from our mission of being together as the body of Christ, of following and serving him, when we live in such a busy and demanding city that seeks to distract us? And how much more difficult is it to be in a church that's made up of so many different nationalities and backgrounds, each with our own ideas? Paul is now writing to this same kind of church as what we have today in this bustling city. And to start off last week, Paul greeted the church, gave God praise and thanks for the Corinthian church. And this week we continue on in 1 Corinthians, 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 through 17. So you can follow along in your copy of God's word, or you can look in the bulletin as I read today's passage. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is some quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or are you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at today's scripture, I think we can sum up the thesis of today as this. Following Christ means joining a church that needs to be unified as one body, follow one head, and fulfill one mission. Repeat that. Following Christ means joining a church that needs to be unified as one body, follow one head, and fulfill one mission. Unified as one body, follow one head, and fulfill one mission. We'll explore today this portion of Paul's letter to the Corinthians in three main points. One body, one head, one mission. One body, one head, one mission. It's my hope and prayer today that as we look at this scripture, wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus, that you find that he loved the church as his bride through all her imperfections, and he gave his life as the ultimate price. And who are we to judge and reject the church, the body of Christ, when our own lives so desperately need his salvation? Our first point to get today focuses on the one body, how the church is to be unified as one body. And we'll be looking at verses 10 to 11 in this part. Again, Paul finishes his greetings and his thanksgiving in the first part of 1 Corinthians 1. And now you can see here he shifts his tone in verse 10. And he starts out with a strong but tender word of appeal while still addressing these believers with the intimate word of brother to show that they still have a close relationship to each other under Jesus Christ. He has a relationship with this church. He was there at the beginning of this church. So they did have some respect for him. He had a level of authority. He could have came in and started rebuking, said, you are doing this wrong, but rather he appeals to them tenderly. He pleads with them about his case for the church not to be divided. More importantly, he states here, by the name of Jesus Christ, to show that they are connected to each other through, only through Jesus, and that he's stressing where the authority of this letter is coming from. Not from Paul himself, not saying, I have an issue with you, but from the one, from the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, Jesus Christ is the only one that can bring unity back to the church. So you see here, uh, the division here, as is pointed out later, there's quarreling within the body. There's quarreling within the church. It's an unhealthy tearing and ripping apart of the body of Christ. And so instead of this, Paul's calling for unity in the body and addresses it with three sayings here, three sayings. 
Uh, same thing, same mind, and same judgment. Same thing, same mind, and same judgment. The first same, same thing, we take it from verse 10 when Paul states that all of you agree. And so this little translation of all of you agree is actually to speak the same things, to speak the same thing. So when he says all of you agree. And so what is this same thing that he's talking about? What is the same thing that we should all agree about? That we should have common interests, that we should like the same music, same, same, but different, tabudol. No, he's asking that the same thing. He's saying that we should all agree on this, that the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, God's own son, and his death on that cross that paid the price of our sins and saved us from our wretched state and our path of destruction, that we should know the gospel. We should know that the good news and speak often of Jesus' work, that he saved us from hell, from separation, from uh, separation from God from all eternity. And that's something that we should all agree with. If you don't agree, or if you have questions about that salvation, please ask me, ask a member of this church uh, today before you leave. Make sure you understand, what are we all agreeing? When we say the same thing, what are we doing here at the service? What do we all agree on? And what is the Lord's purpose for my life? But then what happens when there's still disagreement in the church? Because it's going to happen, and it does happen. And it's very clear to others outside to observe it. And so not much is revealed here or even known about Chloe, but it does show that there's people in her cities that clearly observed what was happening at the church of Corinth. And that she may have had people in her circles that were there, that may have traveled to Ephesus where she was, and they felt it was important enough to pass on that information and then relay that news to Paul to know. And so after receiving this information, as well as a letter from the church, Paul gets to writing a letter to respond and address some of these incorrect attitudes and issues. And so this isn't new in a church. There's infighting even in the earliest churches. In a letter to the Galatian church, Galatians 5, Paul also addresses the same issues, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy, putting all of these uh, as sin and categorizing them alongside other sins, such as sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, and drunkenness. So Paul's saying all of these are sin. Dissension is sin. And so these sins and conflicts are still present in our church today. The church, the body of Christ, are to dig through these things together in a posture of love and humility, which covers a multitude of sins. And so as Jesus states in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Quarreling, sowing discord, do not belong among God's people. Church, let's listen to Paul's appeal to the church of Corinth and apply it here to our church, even in our own hearts. If we feel hurt, if we perceive that we've hurt someone else, possibly intentionally or unintentionally, Jesus wants us to take that step out, to reach out in humility and in love. And honestly, it's not saying that you need to be the one to take that first step out, because Jesus is actually the one that took that first step out of forgiveness on the cross. We're just following his example as we seek to rebuild the relationships in our church. The second same that we look at here in this part is same mind. And so to have the same view on something and to have the same mind on something is actually quite different. And so Lisa and I may have the same view about, okay, we need to purchase some things for our home. We might want to you know, get things that are appropriate or, or get things at, a, at a, a, a better price for it. 
um, sometimes necessary, sometimes frivolous for a home. But we don't necessarily have the same mind on how to do it. She's more practical, and she'll just spend a little bit of time online shopping, and what she finds, and gets it on Taobao. I don't even use Taobao. And then she, she orders it. And then for me, uh, on days where we're near a mall, I usually am quick to volunteer. Hey, let's go shopping. Let's take the kids to a physical store, and then I can look for the best deals. And so we have the same view on something, but we may not always have the same mind on that. And so as a church, we may not start even with the same view on some things, let alone the same mind. But a lot of it's going to boil down to and depend on is it a personal opinion or if it's a larger, big picture worldview that does need to be adjusted in order to be in line with the gospel. The gospel should be paramount, should be most important. As you, and as you grow in your spiritual maturity and understanding of God, you, your worldview should continue to change to be more in line with the gospel. And that's especially true if you grew up in a context where you were not a Christian as a child, where you were not exposed to Christianity and you maybe heard the gospel and became a Christian later in life, in college or as an adult. And so a lot of these things, the way you handle uh, finance or the way that you view different things, they should be changing because the gospel should be affecting every area of your life. How you view work, how you view money and finances, how you view just the sanctity of life, the value of life, how you view war, how you view relationships and resources and stewardships. And so as a church, we can't come to the same mind until we first each humbly come to the Bible and allow the gospel message to change our hearts and our minds. We need to approach the scriptures with an eagerness to learn, but approach each other with an eagerness for humility. Romans 15.5 says that, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. That is the same mind that we need. The third same, and, and kind of the same lines as what we just talked about, is same judgment. And so while the Bible is thorough, and it does show us more about who God is, about our, our state and how much we need him, there are often times where we still feel lost about a decision in life, and sometimes it's a little bit less clear. Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Should I get vaccinated? Should I not get vaccinated? What should I do next week during October holiday? And so we're going to have different opinions and different thoughts to make a judgment on these decisions. And so how do you learn how to make a judgment call? There isn't a prescription, one, two, three, four, but... Paul states here that a church should be of the same judgment. And so we may need to be seeking together as a community, as a church body, uh, just wise counsel from each other, from other believers, other people that you trust, that know you, uh, that love the Lord. We should be ourselves meditating, saturating ourselves with and discussing the word, bringing up passages that we're confused about as we try to make these decisions. We should be learning from sermons and attending evening services. If you have not attended an evening service, I, I encourage you to go. One, you get to hear devotional and hear more of the Lord's word. And also you get to share prayer requests. If you have a difficult decision, if you have a judgment call that you're struggling with, you get to share with other uh, people that you're covenanted with, that people, other members of the church, and lift these requests up together. Now, if you're sitting here and you have been saved by grace, you've been saved and you are a believer of Jesus, but you're still not a member of a local body, I like to ask, what's, what's stopping you? Membership is something that growing up in church, 
I didn't really hear very often. Our family was kind of put into the church directory of a Mennonite church after we had a family interview, after we were kind of regularly attending there over a small uh, period of time. But there wasn't any formal specific class uh, or introduction. There wasn't a, a, a agreement to a covenant. And we didn't have the process of being voted in by the current membership there. And so being part of a church and a member of a church will put you in a covenant with the people that you may not know very well. You may not share all the same common interests, but it does allow you to see more clearly God's redeeming work for his people and allow you to experience greater unification in Christ than any hobby or common interest. The second uh, main point for today, we'll move on to that, is about the church to follow one head. So listen again, this is in verses 12 to 13. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now Paul here begins to address his specific concerns that he's heard about, that the church has been divided into these factions based on which celebrity teacher that they are loyal to and follow. And so who here loves a good math problem, even here in church? See, this is a math problem, but unfortunately they're using the wrong mathematical operation. We should not be a church that divides, but we should be a church that multiplies. And so just to clarify between the two, a division shows that there's a break or a split of a church. Maybe there's a difference in theology or preferences or the background. Whereas the multiplication of a church shows the growth of one body that's unified and that wants to continue to spread to other areas to continue to fulfill that same mission, resulting in a plant. And so WSBC did not split from SIBC. RCBC did not split from WSBC, but we multiplied and we planted See the difference? However, the math equation here in Corinth is wrong. It's division. And so as we discuss the idea of church having and following one head, let's look at each of these different camps described here. Because seeing how these cliques form will allow us a little bit to see some of the pitfalls that we may face that creates division in our own church when we try to follow a person rather than focusing on God. So the first group, some of the Corinthian Christians, they say, I pledge allegiance. I follow Paul. Paul was the one that founded the Corinthian church. He was there at the start, planting the seed of the gospel. They're loyal to the one that brought them the good news. But here, unfortunately, they've substituted Jesus with Paul. They know that Paul was the one that they met face to face. He's the one that brought salvation. And so they may have some kind of nostalgic connection with Paul, a loyalty to him and associate church with Paul. He founded the church. I follow him. And so you can think about here at WSBC, sometimes some of us might have a longing, some of the older members of, of the way it was, all the members that left. We may feel that, oh, uh, Mark is no longer, or Mark is no longer physically here and things will be different. It's true. We do miss them. We miss the Collins family. And we're thankful for how Mark and Megan took a step of faith to help plant this church with many other families, with the Swamp, with many other people many, many years ago, five years ago. And even currently now, Mark still continues to serve as an elder, ministering and blessing many still. 
But to associate or rather identify WSBC as Mark's church is wrong. We pray for the Lord's will to bring them back, to allow the Collins family to return. But we know that the Lord's work here and his heart for the church here is bigger than any one man, any one person. Others in the Corinthian church, they say, I pledge my allegiance to Apollos. Apollos is an Alexandrian Christian who visited Corinth after Paul's departure. And so Apollos continued to provide ministry and teaching to the Christians there. You can see in Acts 18 uh, to 19 that Apollos is described pretty positively. He's a good orator. He's a good speaker. And quote, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, knowledgeable in the scriptures, and he captivated the congregation with his use of rhetoric or logic reasoning and debate. Uh, Acts 18.28 states that he powerfully refuted the Jews, publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And so you can see he is wonderful to listen to, and he creates questions that allow the congregation to, to reflect deeper and to debate and argue with. And so I work at a Christian classical education school, and so our school, like the Greeks, also greatly prized rhetoric, which is the art of preparing a persuasive argument. And we also prize oratory, which is the art of public speaking. And so Apollos' public speaking skills here would cause some of the Corinthians to say, wow, this guy is a celebrity. He is spiritually gifted and strong. I want to follow him. Then there's a third group of Corinthians uh, Christians that pledge their allegiance to Cephas. And so Cephas is just the Aramaic word for rock which then lets you know that this is talking about the apostle Peter. And so Peter in Greek is the word for rock. And so it seems curious that these Greek believers would pledge allegiance to Cephas using his Aramaic name rather than using his Greek name. But Paul understands this, and so he uh, purposely uses the name Cephas in his letters. He refers to Peter Cephas many times later on in this letter, but he doesn't refer to him ever as Peter in this letter to the Corinthians. And so there's no recorded evidence of Cephas having ever entered or visited Corinth. It doesn't mean that he never set foot there, but it could have been also that some of the people that followed Peter would have traveled to Corinth as well. And so because of his Jewish background, it could be possible that some of the Jewish Christians residing there would feel an instant kinship to him. Peter's ministry would have been more relatable and directed towards a Jewish community and maybe focusing more on some of the laws or some of the customs rather than with Paul's ministry, whose ministry was more directed towards the Gentile community there. And so somewhat similar to Paul, some of the uh, Corinthian Christians may be impressed with the fact that this was the Simon Peter. This is the one, original 12, and the leader of the apostles that Jesus would call. And so they wanted that direct connection, say, I follow Peter, I follow Cephas, because he was one of the original 12 called by Jesus. All this to say, we can see that there is danger of identifying a church to a specific person. That if it's a personal preference or a connection to a person that brings you to the church rather than the doctrine, then what it, rather than what it should be, which is the doctrine and the grace of Jesus Christ. And these men, these leaders definitely would be saddened. They are saddened that their ministry or their own personal uh, ministry may have overshadowed the gospel. And so there's still one last group that Paul addresses here in this section, those that pledge allegiance to Christ. At first glance, you think, oh, that sounds good, right? The church, we should be focused on 
the gospel. We should be focused on the news of Jesus' death and resurrection and not on individual ministries of Paul or Apollos or Cephas. I follow Christ. Why is that bad? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Yes, personal salvation is a personal decision of confession, of repentance, and of your reliance on God. However, living out the Christian life requires still being part of a local body, of a church. And it's in that where you put yourself under the shepherding and care of qualified, but still people that are cursed with Adam's sin, elders and pastors. And so what this group does to a fault is that they rejected human leadership in the church. They say, I just want to follow Christ. I don't want to follow any of these leaders that have been um, appointed by Jesus or that have been entrusted by Jesus to lead this church. And so their words say, I follow Christ. But what really plays out in their hearts is still a boastful attitude. They still shift blame and say, this church, I don't belong here. It's really disappointed me. I still have issues with this church, with this leader. He's sinful. Or they may think, my faith is only between me and God. I don't need the church to be a part of that. All of these statements are incorrect lies. They're deceitful ways for the devil to sneak in pride, self-reliance into the believer's heart and make the believer isolated away from the body. With these four different factions, Paul sees a church divided. In our church, we may see similar things. Christ, uh, our church may be divided by culture, by different values, by nostalgia, by hopes, maybe views on different matters, political matters. Churches can also see division by status. If you're a national, Chinese national, if you're an expat, if you're married with kids, married without kids, a single, the list could go on. But the beauty of the cross is that it is able to unify these different groups of people because we have one thing in common. We're all sinners and we're all in need of salvation and a savior. Paul follows these questions with an exasperated exclamation to show just his intense emotion towards this division. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He really wants to emphasize here that they are just messengers of the Lord. They were not the ones that did the actual work of being crucified. These two specific points he brings up here, crucified and baptized, show the salvation that's offered by Christ's crucifixion, as well as the active step of turning to Jesus and being baptized to publicly proclaim the desire to follow Jesus. These are two important steps, knowing the crucifixion and receiving salvation and proclaiming and being baptized. These are two important steps in an individual's relationship with God and spiritual growth. And so here, the, the, again, the church is bringing together people that know that we are sinners and that we are in need of, a, of salvation that we cannot provide or earn by ourselves. And that the only one that can do that, Jesus Christ, is the one true head of the church that we're to follow. Let's move on to our last major point of today, one mission, fulfilling one mission. So we have one body, one head, and now one mission. Listen again as I read verses 14 to 17. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, 
so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. As a church, we're looking at the words here that Paul writes, and it makes us think a bit about the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The mission that Jesus instructs his disciples here is the same mission that he's giving to his followers in the church. So let's look a little bit more closely at the verses here in 1 Corinthians, and we can see the need for the church to fulfill one mission on two different fronts, baptize and preach. The first front, baptize, Paul mentions a few times. As you can see, the way of his letter was formed in a dictation style. And so where he lists different names, Crispus and Gaius, and then um, there seems to be a slight pause before he recalls Stephanus as well. And so after that, instead of trying to recall anyone, he just kind of states, I don't know whether I baptize anyone else. And so the names that he does mention would be Crispus, which is from Acts 18.8. This is a former leader of a synagogue in Corinth, as well as Gaius, who was also from Corinth, and they hosted Paul and the church, uh, and Stephanus, who was... Um, and his household, who were also the earliest converts there in Achaia, which is the province of which Corinth is the capital city. So all of these are, are people that are in that region, in that area. And so Paul brings up this baptism in order to remind us that, one, baptism isn't linked to authority of the name of the person who baptized you. So again, baptized, uh, Paul's showing here that he isn't baptizing in his own name. Paul's point is that, people are sometimes tempted to think too highly of the person that baptized them. It's easy to forget that the person performing the baptism is just a servant of Christ. And so if Paul had baptized lots of people in Corinth, then these people would all even have more reason or temptation to say, I follow Paul, I belong to Paul. And that would continue to contribute to the problem of divisions within the Corinthian church. Paul also reminds us here that baptism isn't authority passed on by a certain person. The power and purpose of baptism isn't derived by the baptizer, by that person's authority. Some may think that baptism established some kind of mystical relationship or some kind of bond between the baptizer and the baptized. But there isn't. It's not some sort of special uh, force connection, a Jedi master or a, a Padawan in that kind of relationship that there's a spiritual link involved. We aren't baptized by the name of that pastor or elder. We are baptized, again, as Jesus says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The second front that Paul looks at here is about preaching of how the church is to fulfill one mission. And so looking carefully here at the word, the wording, verse 17 says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which corresponds with and so this corresponds with Jesus' commission that we should go and make disciples, basically to evangelize. And so this is not a contradiction. In Paul's statement, it may appear that he has a low priority or a low view of baptism, that he was only sent here to preach and that baptizing should be his second priority. But in his relationship with the Corinthian church, Paul was there in its infancy. He was there, in his own words, to plant the seed of the gospel. And shortly after he left, Apollos was there to continue to teach 
to disciple, to possibly baptize as described in the plant analogy again, to water the church. And so neither of these men were responsible for the salvation of the church, but they were doing the different roles that the Lord has called them to grow and to encourage and to minister to the early believers, the early church there. And the rest of verse 17 says, um, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so again, the Corinthian church is one that didn't just appreciate a good preacher, as we saw before, but they may idolize or give them celebrity status. They want to hear the word of that preacher more than they actually wanted to hear God's word. Again, remember, they were a culture that prized wisdom as well as speech, as well as rhetoric. And so when a pastor needs to use different gimmicks, try to stay cool with current fashion trends, utilize social media trends in order to stay relevant, or even preach a feel-good, self-help kind of sermon, they're actually pulling the congregation farther from the Word and the Bible and distracting them away from the truth and taking the focus off the cross, thus emptying it of its power. If you know of teaching, if you see any books that do that, stay away from that. Celebrity pastors, again, people are following this pastor and the character of him and not Christ. And unfortunately, we see too frequently in recent years that many of these celebrity pastors, these famous pastors, have actually fallen from the faith. They've actually fallen from their uh, faith in God. And so as we look at these examples of these men that have stumbled, of these leaders, we have to ask, does this cheapen the gospel? Does this contradict if a person has come to faith through a specific ministry? Does it void salvation if that pastor has fallen from grace? No, it only shows, and it only continues to magnify even more the power of the cross. And so to bring sinners in need of him to the throne of God. In a Gospel Coalition article, How to Respond When Church Leaders Fall, uh, Christopher Ash writes that, It's right to be both sad and angry in the face of sin, for it is through sin that death came into the world. Every ugliness, every, each misery, all suffering is the result of sin. And so the ones that teach every Sunday, myself included, the ones that teach uh, at the devotionals, we have the same heart condition and same sickness of sin as everyone else that's in this room. In the same article, Chris also writes, when I hear about a fallen minister, it frightens me to know that I'm entirely capable of doing just what he's done, or worse, I share a sinful nature. And so recently in our church, we've had many more brothers step up to teach, to service lead, uh, and to just to lead the church in many different ways, teaching, doing equipping classes, uh, even teaching uh, the children and gospel project, but also doing Sunday night devotionals. And so we're reminded here just of the work of the Spirit and how it continues to challenge and grow these brothers. But also, as we prepare for each of these opportunities to teach, the heart condition is so important to reflect and to check. What are my motives? We should be motivated to teach and lead in a way so that the cross is not emptied of its power. We want to lead and serve in a way to see Jesus in his full glory, not to take our eyes away from the cross and to view only the person that's standing in front of you. Today our reading was from Nehemiah 8. It's funny because uh, John actually asked me if he could help me 
uh, prepare the, the service plan for this week. And I was a bit busy in the beginning. So yes, please, please help me, brother. And so he put it together. And it wasn't until maybe last night that I, I, I kind of put it aside. And then last night I was finishing this up. And I said, hey, I should put Nehemiah in here. And then I realized that they were actually connected already. So it wasn't done on purpose at all. Again, praise the Lord for that. And so they read from the book. You can see here, be like Ezra, reading from the book, from the law of God, clearly, that they gave it sense. They gave sense so that people understood the reading. And so the word of God is what's important in our teaching. But not just a word to the brothers that lead and teach, but also I want to give a word for everyone here that's listening. Number one, praise the Lord, not the preacher. Number two, look for substance, not for style. And the third one, give feedback in a way that encourages, equips, and gives enthusiasm for the brother to grow. Encourages, equips, and gives enthusiasm. Even looking at Apollos here, we see how Priscilla and Aquila, they had the first service review here. They pulled him aside in private. They gave him some constructive feedback and criticism. Acts 18.26 says, He, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And that only strengthened the ministry continued to allow more to come to Christ. We should conclude. The Lord, in his infinite wisdom, has guided our elders to choose this series on 1 Corinthians to grow and challenge us as a church. Let's not miss this opportunity. The Lord, in his merciful grace, has allowed me to preach on certain areas and certain scriptures that are recent lessons in my life that I am learning and studying, but even more so to see the Spirit's work in my own heart and to see his goodness all the more. Church isn't always an easy place to go to. The fact of the matter is that church is made up, again, of a collection of sinners that struggle with different sins. For many years here at WSBC, I felt fairly outside of the church. I felt outside and excluded. We live geographically farther away down to the south than most of the membership here. And honestly, it's not always a super happy, every day's great experience as well. We still live in the same area. At its worst, it was a case of the fashion that I followed Jesus but I don't feel included by the church. I wanted to do life with church, but I felt hurt by the church and generally sad and hopeless in this situation. But in that case, we need to look beyond ourselves. We need to look and not place a focus on I. I feel this way. I follow Christ. I follow this person. Actually, we can't even place a focus on others. We can't expect others to make up for our hurts and pains, that we should be receiving and expecting this care and support from others in the church. The most important focus and the work first and foremost is of Jesus Christ, not on ourselves and what we have done or our specific situation. A few couples from our church and from a few other churches have asked my wife and I to help them before in pre-marriage counseling. We're humbled and honored to to be uh, asked to do that, and we love doing it so as well. And so during that time, we always say that marriage isn't a 50-50 split. It's not 50% husband, 50% wife, but actually it's a 100-100 split, 100%, 100%. And so in our perfect example of marriage with Christ in the church, you see that Jesus gave 100% as the bridegroom. He laid down his life to purify his bride. And so as the bride of Christ, as the body, as the church, we need to give 100%. 
And so what does that mean? We can't do anything to earn his love, but we need to be seeking unity as a body. We need to be humbly examining ourselves when conflicts arise. We need to seek forgiveness and restoration, again, that only Jesus can provide. And so a month ago, again, at our five-year birthday party of WSBC, Luke graded our church. He gave us average, which I guess is a C, uh, if you use that scale, or 2.0. But he gave us an uh, an average score in related, uh, in the area of devoted to fellowship. So Luke's a pretty tough grader to give us a C. But he encouraged us at that time as well. He encouraged us to consider this and to continue to reach out, that if you are a member here, of this church, whether it's for all five years or even seven days, which MJ's not here, but he's been a member here for seven days, that we all have a role to play as members here, to be one body, to follow one head, and to fulfill one mission. Remember, as a body of believers, as a church, it's not I follow this, or I believe in that, or I need this. We need to spur each other on to go out as one body to preach, evangelize, and baptize. And we need to say that we follow Christ.